Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAPS and Board of View podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young and Andrew Powell. Just a reminder, these episodes are meant for medical education only, not to diagnose things on anybody's eyes. Uh, each week, we review a high yield topic and talk about the why and the how. What are we talking about this week, Andrew? This week, we are shoring up last week a little bit and talking a bit more about the specifics of ocular radiation, or rather, you know, the tox- the toxic effects of radiation therapy or I guess incidental radiation exposure to the eye and the different structures in the eye. We're first going to talk about the types of radiation that are typically used, um, mainly for the ocular context, but we'll touch a bit on things that might be used adjacent to the eye, such as the orbit and the brain, and then we'll go into the radiation damage and what it can do to the eye. Uh, You know, if anyone out there is physics oriented and would like to send in corrections about things we're about to, like crimes we're about to commit (laughs) against the great halls of physics, then please please do so at our Twitter, at Eyes for Ears. Okay, so we're going to talk about the three main types of radiation that are used for the eye itself, and those are brachytherapy, external beam radiotherapy, and proton beam therapy, otherwise called charged particle therapy. Uh, therapy. So first we'll talk about brachytherapy. We um, brushed over this a little bit in the last episode about um, the collaborative ocular melanoma studies. Basically, brachytherapy is where you set up a plaque with radioactive seeds within it, and then you apply that directly to the tissue that you want to cause radiative damage to because it has a tumor typically. And these plaques are used a lot in you know, areas like urology for the prostate, but also used uh, in ophthalmology to treat ocular melanoma typically. And if you're confused by the name, as we explained in last episode, brachy means short. So this means you're putting something with a very short distance or right up against the, uh, the, the target tissue. In terms of the type of, or the source of radiation, this can be quizzed on. Uh, the, the, the one that's mainly used in the United States is iodine-125, BCSC states that ruthenium-106, RU-106, is also used um, in Europe, apparently for more smaller melanomas. So, you know, that's probably nothing that's going to be quizzed on. But, you know, if you're in the U.S., it's basically going to be iodine-125. Because this can trip people up, another iodine that's used often in um, radiotherapy is iodine-131. And that, I'll let you think about what that might be used for. And if you guess the forms of, of thyroid disease, then it, it, it is used for that. So don't mix up iodide-125, which is used for brachytherapy, with iodide-131, which is typically taken as a pill and used to treat the thyroid. This also probably won't be quizzed on, but iodide-125 produces gamma rays. And remember, gamma rays are just a type of light, really. I mean, what is light? That's electromagnetic radiation. So gamma rays aren't visible light, but it, you know, it, it's, it's still a type of light. The next thing to talk about is external beam radiotherapy. So this is also the main mechanism of how it works is also through light, through which again is electro- electromagnetic radiation, but again, a higher frequency wavelength of light, either an X-ray, you know, that which we all know and love, or, you know, sometimes gamma rays are used as well. But in, in any case, it's just light that's a high enough frequency to cause damage to biological tissue. So in general, um, External beam radiotherapy is ineffective for um, for intraocular tumors like choroidal melanomas or uveal melanomas uh, more broadly. However, it can be used somewhat with orbital tumors. So you may still see patients who are experiencing external beam radiotherapy for an essentially ocular cause. So it may be good to know exactly what it is. Are so, there 
other yeah. sorry are there like other clinical situations say like whole whole brain radiation therapy where if a patient's getting it for some other cranial reason it might still affect the ocular structures yeah for sure for sure definitely so th that is the other situation where you might need to know about it to help give yourself a diagnosis for the eye so i i think i mean uh, i think broadly speaking i think most people would agree that if you have radiation to the head or neck then it could affect the eye you know i think they try hard to um to target, you know, whatever target structure they want to very specifically. And I'll talk about that a little bit with gamma knife therapy, which is one of those ways to try to target a structure. But, you know, the eye is close enough to a lot of these head and neck tumors that it can just definitely be a bystander, which is why patients can experience the things we're going to talk about in the second half of this episode. So, yeah, I think th that's a great point. It's not just orbital tumors that you have to think about. You, If you see a patient with one of the radiative damage effects, you should definitely think, ask questions about pri any kind of prior radiative therapy, you know, even including um, especially head and neck, but maybe, you know, a chest stuff too. Perhaps there's enough stray radiation. Perhaps it was long enough ago that shielding wasn't as good as it is nowadays. Um, so uh, just so I'm, we're going to talk about how to target external beam radiotherapy because it helps to contrast with the next thing we're going to talk about, proton beam therapy. So energy is deposited in tissue, like as this radiation travels through tissue. And as you might expect, it kind of drops off uh, exponentially. So, you know, very early on in the tissue, you know, the tissue is going to absorb a lot. And then the, um, the energy is going to drop off exponentially as it travels through the tissue until it's gone, until it's dissipated. So the problem, if, say, you're trying to target um, something in the orbit is, you know, let's say you just put an, um, a radiation source right in front of a patient's head. The whole eye is going to absorb a, way more energy than the orbit because it's in front of that tumor in the orbit, you know, the meningioma or whatever it is. So you know, that can be a problem because then you're causing a lot of damage to the, to the eye, and it's basically kind of blocking the damage that you want to be done to the tumor in the orbit. So the way that that you can get around that is with which is called stereotactic radiotherapy, of which a subtype that is well known is called gamma knife therapy. The idea is instead of just one radiation source right in front of the eye, and the eye is shielding and absorbing all of it, is you have a bunch of weak radiation sources all around where the tumor is. So you could imagine like kind of like a dome 360 of like uh, radiation sources all around where the tumor is in the orbit. Then all of them emit kind of a, a weaker amount of radiation. So the tissue, so between the tumor and the, um, and the radiation source, so that could be the eye, it could be the temple, it could be the top of the head, you know, any of this tissue will absorb a relatively less amount of radiation. But all that radiation will kind of sum up at the tumor because it's in the right in the middle of where all these different sources of radiation are. So basically the, the radiation sources will peak or add up in that area so that you can get this focus of radiation right at where the tumor is and you're causing less damage to every other structure around it. Okay, the, the last thing then to talk about that, that's really used for the eye, and obviously there's other things like electron beam therapy, which is very interesting, but that's more for dermatology type tumors. So the last thing to really talk about for us is charged particle, which is essentially synonymous with proton beam therapy. So what's the difference between this and the other two therapies I talked about, which were brachytherapy and external beam radiotherapy? Well, external beam and brachytherapy both use light or electromagnetic radiation, as we said. Charged particle uses protons to deliver the damage it wants to do to the target tissue, the target tumor. 
So what's so special about protons that you'd bother using them? I mean, I'll tell you, proton beams are very expensive to make. You have to make a big old particle accelerator to make proton beams. It's not as, I mean, it's not easy to make um, um, x-ray radiation, but it's it's very expensive to make a proton beam. Most institutions that have one will typically only have one because of how big and expensive these things are. So here's why these could be useful. So I told you that radiation, like x-ray radiation, it drops off exponentially like you kind of would expect as it moves through through tissue because the tissue is absorbing the energy, so it's proportionally reducing how much energy is going to travel through the tissue. Proton beams, because of an interesting physical effect, which maybe I'll record at the end, it's like a supplementary bit, but it's like a little bit, maybe too much physics than, than you want to hear. Because Basically, you can imagine because it's a heavier particle, it actually doesn't drop off as much as it travels through matter. So the energy it deposits as it travels through tissue doesn't drop off. It actually stays relatively constant, relatively constant, relatively constant until it hits some some distance in the tissue, which is defined by how much energy the proton was shot into the tissue. And then it basically kind of just stops there. So it deposits the rest of its energy right in that one spot. So it'll actually peak somewhere deep within the tissue. That's called the Bragg peak, um, if you ever want to look up and read more about this. So what's really nice about that is just by the physical nature of the particle causes less damage to whatever the tissue is traveling to. And if you set the energy parameters right, delivers the most energy to the target, whatever it is, whether it's the uveal melanoma or the orbital tumor, whatever you're trying to target. So that's what's nice about proton beam therapy. In theory, it can minimize damage to um, kind of incidental structures that just happen to be between the radiation source and the um, the target tissue. So some things to um, to highlight for OCAP purposes. Oftentimes, if you could use proton beam therapy, you could also use brachytherapy, you know, which is that radiation plaque. So you to compare and contrast them, the tumor response. This is very broadly speaking, is pretty similar between charged particle therapy and brachytherapy, and for for uh, pr- you know, for charged particle, i.e., proton beam therapy, it uh, in theory delivers a more homogeneous dose. So it delivers a more even dose to the target tumor, and the, that's compared to brachytherapy, which is um, basically you can think of brachytherapy as like a piece of metal, and they put a bunch of little seeds of radiation in it. So there's a bunch of like little kind of they look like rice grains almost of radiation. So, you know, they put many of those to try to make it as even an energy distribution as possible because there's a bunch of little tiny rice grains that are each emitting their own amount of radiative energy. It can't be as even as a proton beam therapy. However, a disadvantage of proton beam therapy is it delivers more energy to the anterior segment than brachytherapy. Um, and then the, the last thing about proton beam therapy is a lot of centers don't have it. I mean, actually, I should look it up. How many how many proton, proton beam centers in the US. I'm just curious. Before when I was in school it was 5. Okay. When I was in undergrad it was I think 5 or 7 proton beam therapy centers. Now there's 27 total proton therapy centers in the United States according to the New York Times. So that's another limiting factor is there's not many. And that's particle physics in a nutshell for the ophthalmologist. I'm done <laughs> with that. <laughs> um, okay. thanks very much for that great summary. Yeah, I hope some of that made sense. Okay, so now let's focus on the actual damage that radiation can do to the eye. Remember, radiation mainly works by ionizing DNA, i.e. damaging DNA. As a result, tissues that are actively dividing are proportionally more affected by radiation. 
that's why it's used to destroy tumors because tumors are by definition, more actively dividing than they should be. And that's not the only reason, but typically radiation damage has a delay either one year or even more. I mean, that's not a rule, but typically there's a delay. And that's why it's important to ask patients if you see anything we're about to talk about, whether or not they've had radiation in the past, because it could be many years ago and they might not directly connect their eye problem to that radiation they had for their, you know, for their jaw or whatever it was. So, we're going to talk about grays in a bit because that is a standard unit that uh, we think about when we think about how much damage has been done to a target tissue. And that's the unit that you should be looking up if your patient reports they had radiation in the past, if you're trying to figure out is that the cause of their current problem. So just to orient you a little bit to grays, one gray equals one joule of radiation energy to a kilogram of matter. So it's one joule per kilogram of tissue. You know, unless you think about joules a lot, that doesn't maybe mean a lot to you. I mean, it's how much energy it takes to raise, you know, a unit of water by one by one degree Celsius. But maybe to give you a better idea of what that amount of radiation is equivalent to, we have a couple things to, to orient you. 0.1 micrograys is the equivalent of eating one banana. And why are bananas trying to kill me? Yeah, I know. It's actually the potassium in them. There's enough of a radioactive isotope of potassium in bananas that it can that, that it causes some small amount of radiation. If you if you get a Geiger counter, if anyone has a Geiger counter at home for some reason, and you go next to a banana truck, it'll actually emit enough grays to um, set off your Geiger counter. So ben, fun fact. When was the last time you saw a banana truck? What? When was the last time you saw like, a Geiger counter? This is just for fun. <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> Okay, so then, so that's 0.1 micrograys. Then 20 micrograys is the num- amount of radiation you get from a chest X-ray. So it's really not that much, you know. It's like, maybe like, what is that? 200 bananas a year. I mean, it's a lot of bananas, but that's as much as getting a chest X-ray. So chest X-rays actually don't give you that much radiation. Going on a airplane flight, that's about five hours. So like, you know, you're kind of your average. Is that how long it takes to get to LA from New York? Five hours? Um, six hours. That's six. Okay. Well. That trip will give you a little bit more than 40 micrograys. But for a five-hour average airplane flight, it's about 40 micrograys. And that's because there's less radiative shielding when you're at that altitude. Um, that's why you get a little bit more radiation when you're in an airplane flight. So it's like two chest X-rays worth. And then far above that is six milligrays. So that's, oh God, 6,000 <laughs> micrograys. Three orders of magnitude, <laughs> right? Yeah, 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 exactly. So 6,000 micrograys is the equivalent of a chest CT. So, you know, 20 micrograys is chest x-ray, 6,000 micrograys is a chest CT. Yeah. And um, so that's, you know, that's just to give you kind of a sense of scale. The grays that we're going to be talking about really start at like 10 grays. So not 10 micrograys like we've been talking about, 10 grays. So it's like a much higher level of energy. So yeah, don't worry. You can eat a budget. You can eat 5 million banana trucks worth of bananas apparently and probably still not develop radiation retinopathy. Uh, yes, but remember, this is this podcast is not for medical advice. So if you do that and you get something, do not sue us. I mean, I think they'll die of hyperkalemia first. But <laughs> that's probably true. That's probably true. But I don't know enough about general or medicine to chronic kidney that. disease, or acute kidney injury. Who knows? That, that is that is a significant or bananas. or just obesity. Yeah. That's a lot of bananas, bro. <laughs> just just right, plain right. old plain old betus. Okay, diabetic retinopathy before radiation retinopathy. Uh, okay. So, Andrew, what is the, um, you know, I tried to remember, the, like, when I review this, I try to remember in the order that tissues are more 
easily damaged by radiation therapy. So what tissue within the eye is most easily damaged by radiation therapy? Well, remember before I kind of talked about some of my, one of my mentors' idea that the entire purpose of most of the eye structures is to protect the lens of the eye. Mm, um, very anterior segment focused person. Yes, the retina, forget it. The entire <laughs> uh-huh. the entire reason the eye is there is to protect the lens. That's not <laughs> my it, idea, okay? It's a shield for the lens. <laughs> the retina protects it posteriorly. But why, why would this lens need so much babying and protection? Because, you know, among all other things, it's also very acutely sensitive to radiation toxicity. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, Ben, you gave us a great kind of rundown of like how much radiation dosing we're getting exposed to, but you had all these prefixes to the grays, micrograys, milligrays in the case of a CT. In this case, it's still, you know, the least amount of grays that'll take that it takes the least amount of grays of any ocular structure to damage the lens, but it's still 10 to 20 grays cumulatively that's required to kind of bust the lens and start turning it into a cataract. And some reports even say it's as low as like two grays. So it's definitely the most uh, fragile of the ocular structures to radiation. And Ben, what exactly, I think you kind of uh, did a little more digging as to like what part of the cataract is actually getting most affected by this. I can guess based on what you said already about the mitotically active areas being what absorbs and really gets damaged in radiation, um, that it's those mitotically active parts of the lens, which are where again, Ben? Right. So to, to review that, where, how the lens grows is it's all about right around the equatorial region of the lens. So that's, you know, that's a part of the lens you can't see, you know? So if you're like on the, if you're like in the very core of the lens, it'd be like all the lateral parts of the lens. That makes sense. Um, the parts are like under the iris. Sometimes you can see it with a really dilated exam in gonioscopy, but uh, you're typically not seeing that. Or yeah. they're like anoretic or something. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's really hard to see. Yeah, agreed. So just to review what th- like part- zones of that are important, because I don't know if we'll do a whole episode on this, is there's, so there's the pre-equatorial zone, so the more like anterior to the equator, and then there's the equator and then the post-equatorial zone or posterior to the equator. So the pre-equatorial zone is a germinative zone of the lens. So that's where the lens epithelial cells, the parts that compose like the cortex of the lens, are most mitotically active. And then they, as they are kind of um, dividing, they move to the equatorial zones to right into that kind of corner of the lens that they, at the equator. And that's where the cuboidal lens epithelial cells transition to becoming more like ribbons. And anyone who's done cataract surgery should this should kind of ring true to them because you'll note that when you break apart or do your nuclear fractus, that the lens seems to be composed of a bunch of fibers. And this is where that fiber development starts is in the equator. And then finally, it finishes its transition into becoming these ribbons from the bow region, which is the equator, to the post-equatorial zone where that differentiation completes. So, you know, we said that the pre-equatorial zone is where it's most metallically active, and that, in fact, is likely where the radiation damage is being done. So that means that those cells are being disor- disorganized or damaged or um, disrupted on the way to trying to become this bow region. Now, if this happened to someone when they were an infant, it might produce a congenital like nuclear cataract because this usually happens to someone whose lens is already at least partially developing. This will mainly present as a posterior subcapsular cataract. So that's like 
out of that long-winded thing, that's the main thing to remember, that radiation <laughs> classically causes a posterior subcapsular cataract. This is a little beyond BCSC, but classically, it um, a PSC from, from radiation has like a ring-like central clearing. So oftentimes your vision may be good still. They may have like some glare, you know, still, but oftentimes your vision may be good. And I didn't find a good reason why they have that ring-like central clearing. Perhaps <clears throat> it's that the Fair ring enough, yeah. of um, PSC is um, it, it, it demarcates the time when they had that radiative episode, and then the clearing is when it, you know, when they didn't have radiation. But I, I don't know. That's speculation on my part. That's not literature supported. <laughs> cool. Yep. So uh, now you know what's next. How a lens? <laughs> now, yeah. Now you know how a lens becomes a cataract through radiation damage, and know that that's ten to twenty. Ten to twenty grays is generally the threshold that's how for that. Bill becomes a law. Yeah. So uh, okay. Um, okay. <laughs> if you hit an eye with forty grays roundabouts, what's the next thing that's probably most likely to get damaged next, Ben? Yeah. So the next structure is in front of the um, the cataract and that's the ocular surface. So the reason that gets damaged is another th- part of the eye that is um, that is mitotically active are the glands, namely meibomian glands and lacrimal glands. So those um, get damaged so it can result in dry eye, which can result in all sorts of corneal surface problems associated with dry eye, including enough to, you know, corneal ulceration from how dry um, these folks' eyes can be. And this can also cause other manifestations of this kind of keratoconjunctivitis sicca, this very kind of dry ocular surface syndrome, including things like some blepharon and, and, and such. Okay, and then what's, what's, after, what's after that, Andrew? So the other, you know, We've talked about 10 to 20 grays causing lens problems, 40 gray roundabouts causing ocular surface issues. The range from 50 to 80 grays or something is kind of annoying because that's everything else almost. And um, that's where the big one, radiation retinopathy, comes up. You can also get in this zone of gray damage, 50 to 80 grays, optic neuropathy, radiation optic neuropathy. You can get Neovascular glaucoma from kind of unclear reasons exactly, but it's probably not, uh, it could be damaged straight to the trabecular meshwork or the iris or any kind of um, aqueous humor outflow pathway, really. With the NVG thing? Yeah, and that's what I was looking up earlier a bit. It's also in that oh, I see. 50, to 80, 50 to 80 um, range. It seems to be anterior segment structures, but honestly, it's in the same dosing category as radiation retinopathy. All the ischemia in something like uh, retinal ischemia problems eventually makes neovascularization develop more anterior too. But what if you didn't have any real like radiation damage to the retina? It was all isolated to the iris. It's still going to contribute to like some kind of vascular angiogenic drive and neovascularization sure. will still kind of generate itself on the iris. But it's one example where you could have all of this ischemia really isolated to the anterior segment, which we almost never really see in other for other reasons, right? Right. That makes sense. So basically what I'm getting is it could either be from indirect from like you know, ischemic radiation retinopathy leading to NVG or just direct damage to the anterior segment structures leading to NVG and other anterior segment damage. 
Yeah. And, you know, we kind of glossed over the cornea also. I mean, we talked about in that 40 gray category kind of ocular surface meibomian glands and, you know, other stuff that contributes to dry eye. But the cornea itself can also just sort of melt away. And that's also in this 50 to 80 gray category too. I don't know if you want to, if this is the time now, Ben, to like go into a couple of details about the clinical presentations of things like ra radiation retinopathy. Yeah, yeah. So I'll talk about radiation retinopathy. Um, again, this is like kind of the big thing that has a delayed onset. So it could be, you know, two years after um, radiation was delivered. It's typically slowly progressive. And it usually happens uh, after 18 months for x-ray radiation, you know, not for the eye, but for some other reason that's near the eye, and before 18 months if they had plaque radiotherapy. But it's Which, still, you know, no. kind of a delayed um, onset. What's that? I mean, I, it, that seems to make sense to me because, like, the plaque therapy is just right there, more, more consistent, right? Yes. More direct. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's more kind of local damage done to the retina. Yeah. Um, the first sign of radiation retinopathy, and this is like something that could be quizzed, is usually a cotton wool spot, which, remember, is an infarct of the um, retinal nerve fiber layer. And another way that, you know, radiation retinopathy can be kind of hard to distinguish from, say, diabetic retinopathy. It seems to cause damage to the microvasculature of the retina. Something that's kind of unusual, though, is it can present as a large exudative retinal uh, detachment, which is unlike normal diabetic retinopathy. Yeah. Okay. So I'll, I'll mention then how optate, the radiation optic neuropathy presents. And uh, this is almost eerily similar to just sort of like a sudden ischemic optic neuropathy, really, because it'll present sudden as a monocular vision loss. And sometimes if the other eye is involved, if there was like enough ionizing radiation or whatever to hit both eyes, the other eye can also become can present in the same wave shortly after, but it's usually asymmetric. And the out visual outcomes are also pretty poor, as you'd imagine. I mean, radiation retinopathy, you can kind of cross your fingers that maybe the plaque hit away from the macular or something, or all the um, damage is right in the line of vision. But with optic neuropathy, you know, it doesn't really matter. That's where the buck stops. So 85% of people with radiation optic neuropathy end up with like worse than 20 over 200 vision. And it can be kind of mysterious when you're first seeing it if you don't know that the patient's been radiated before because unless it's really presenting at the anterior optic nerve, you won't really necessarily see like optic nerve swelling. And you can't count on seeing pallor in the acute setting either until you know, the typical six to eight weeks goes by. So for the first six to eight weeks, an acute radiation optic neuropathy might be a mystery unless you did a really good history and asked them like, hey, did you ever get radiation to your eyes or your head before? Yeah. I mean, I'm not a neuro-ophthalmologist, but I, if I recall correctly from seeing cases where this was in question, it's always a very difficult thing to diagnose and difficult thing to manage. Yeah, and it also can happen so delayed, like three years out after the radiation. So at that point, is it from radiation or is it just a random ischemic optic neuropathy all in of its own? So knowing the history really helps a lot. But even then, it's hard to like, you know, you might never really be able to say for sure which one is which. And that's yeah. about all I got for this stuff. <laughs> that's what we That's what we got. 
you mind if I, I answer I think, with a uh, quick summary? Yeah, sure. Oh, go yeah, ahead go with ahead. your summary. But I'm just sort of like I'm taking a step back, wondering on the utility of this. Um, this is one of those episodes, I think, where it was just information all scattered throughout the different volumes of the BCSC that always seemed like testable factoids to me, but was really hard to collect in one place. So hopefully this has achieved that collection of facts in one place, but I still don't know exactly how how high yield it is. But uh, hopefully yeah, I, if, you I feel are, like if you get hit by a gray question or something, you'll be better off for this episode. <laughs> yeah. And, and I feel like clinically, you know, we're seeing the patients who get, I mean, depending, I guess, on what clinical setting you are in, like if you're somewhere with like a big um, oncology presence, that I, you know, I feel like clinically, like these questions come up and it's good to know when to ask, especially just knowing to ask, like if you have a problem, anything that's anything like this to ask, hey, did you have radiation? You know, like have you ever had any like radiation therapy or even to ask things like if you ever work in like somewhere where you were exposed to a lot of radiation, you know, like perhaps in some military settings, you may have worked in with a lot of radiation or feel worked like in a nuclear, you know, um, uh, nuclear reactor if, site or anything like that. If you are Homer Simpson. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Homer Simpson, etc. Okay, I'm going to hit us with a quick summary and then we'll sign off. So we started by talking about what the types of radiation are. Those include brachytherapy, which emits electromagnetic radiation from a plaque, external beam radiotherapy, which is not used typically for the eye itself but for orbital tumors and is um, from an external radiation source that also emits electromagnetic radiation, and charged particle, which is the same as proton beam therapy, which emits a large heavy particle that conveniently deposits en its energy at a specific depth within the tissue, which helps to spare the rest of the tissue. Then we talked about uh, radiation damage. We discussed what a gray was, which is just a unit of energy deposited in matter. And we talked about the effects it can have on the eye. So from 10 to 20 grays, it can affect... Uh, or honestly, from like two to 20 grades, it can take very little radiation to cause a cataract. That's the first thing. The second thing is ocular surface problems or the cornea by causing dry eye from damaging the lubricating glands of the eye. That's typically around 40 grades. And from 50 to 80 grades, it can cause um, radiation retinopathy. Though note that radiation retinopathy can occur at 30 to 35 grades. And that's the number that I would typically remember as causing damage to the eye. Is 30 to 35. Below that, you can really mainly only get a cataract. But um, but radiation retinopathy can um, occur at about 30 degrees and can look like diabetic retinopathy. Usually starts to cause wool spots and can have large exudative retinal detachments. And optic neuropathy can also occur. At these higher um, radiation levels, it can present as sudden monocular vision loss that can become sequential, assuming the other eye received, um, other optic nerve received radiation. They typically, um, they can look swollen, but not always. And you usually won't see pallor until six to eight weeks, like in normal optic neuropathies. And finally, the rest of the anterior segment can be damaged either by direct injury to it, uh, presenting as a radiation glaucoma, from neovascularization or indirectly from radiation retinopathy becomes ischemic and that would require PRP or anti-VEGF agents. And that's all we got. If you like what you heard, you can follow us on Twitter at eyes4ears at the number four. And we got our website going on at uh, eyes4ears.com with the number four also. If you'd like to support the podcast and if you leave a rating review on iTunes or wherever you found our podcast, it's really helpful. 
And I hope everyone is staying safe. Again, this is one of the pandemic era podcasts. And um, yeah, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.